0: All right. Welcome back to the listener's commentary on the Gospel of Mark. Before we jump into the content on this recording, I just wanted to give an update. I sent out a special podcast, just an announcement podcast last week, uh, mentioning uh, this opportunity that has, been, that has come our way to rebuild our website and inviting you to participate in that by uh, generously donating. And I I actually had to edit the intro to this recording because I'd already had this recorded, and your guys' generosity absolutely blew me away. In response to that announcement about this opportunity, uh, you guys have given more than enough to cover the upfront cost of Uh, rebuilding the website, the listeners commentary website, rebuilding the study hub, integrating the classes, my online courses into all of that. You gave more than enough to uh, actually do that. I was thinking I was going to have to do small little monthly payments to do this. You guys blew me away with your generosity so much so that some of the monthly uh, hosting and management fees are even covered for a while. So thank you so much, for your generosity. May God bless you for it. Uh, obviously, this ministry is not 100% fully funded. We're only really about, what I can predict each month, about 75% funded. And so there's still a need to cover ongoing monthly costs, both for hosting and managing the new website, as well as just normal ministry fees. So if you, if the Lord is still leading you to support this ministry, uh, then by all means, jump in and set up a monthly donation. All monthly donors will get access to the new and improved Study Hub once it's up and going. So feel free to do that. But more than anything else, let me just say a huge thank you from the bottom of my heart to you guys for uh, donating the way you did it. It encouraged me, blew me away, means a ton to me. I'm so grateful for you. And I praise God that this ministry is uh, bearing much fruit all around the world. So thanks a ton for your generosity. May God bless you for it. All right, let's jump into the content for this recording. All right, in this recording, we're going to be looking at Mark chapter 8, verses 1 through 26. Jesus and his disciples have been spending time in Gentile regions. After teaching on clean and unclean in chapter 7, Jesus takes his disciples to the region of Tyre, where he delivers the daughter of a Syrophoenician woman from a demon. Then he travels up through Sidon and down to the Decapolis, another Gentile region on the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee, where he heals a deaf and mute man. Well, it seems in our current episode here in Mark chapter 8, Jesus and his disciples are still in the region of the Decapolis. So, once again, this story shows that Jesus' mission includes the Gentiles as well. Here's the way the story unfolds. Mark chapter 8, verse 1 says, in those days, that is in the days that we've just described. And so this links the story loosely to the preceding story where he healed a deaf and mute man in the Decapolis and thus we're still in the Decapolis. So in those days, when there was again a large crowd and they had nothing to eat, Notice the again, that harkens back to the story that's in our recent memory where Jesus did this in Jewish lands and there was a large crowd and he ends up feeding them. Well, that's kind of what we're echoing here. And so there's this large crowd again, had nothing to eat. Jesus summoned his disciples and said to them, I feel compassion for the people because they have remained with me for three days already and they have nothing to eat. And so it's been three days of Jesus teaching and ministry. This crowd has been there. Uh, Now they've run out of food. And Jesus continues in verse 3 and says, And if I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way. Some of them have come from a great distance. And that phrase great distance literally is from afar. And some scholars see a connection between the word afar, great distance, and the Gentiles. And the reason for that is because the word far off or afar was commonly used in the Septuagint for the Gentiles or the nations. It's also used that way in the New Testament, for example, in Ephesians chapter 2, 11 and following. But really, it seems to me that that's maybe overreading that word. Here, it seems really to just have to do more with simple geography. They're a long way from home. They've been with Jesus for a few days. They don't have any food, and they haven't eaten in a while. And if Jesus sends them home... Man, they're just not going to have the strength to make the journey up and over through all the hills on the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee. I think that's simply what it means. And so here's this crowd, and it's been a few days. They don't have food. Jesus is concerned about him. Uh, and so he asked his disciples, man, look at the situation here. And here's how the disciples respond. Verse 4, his disciples replied to him, where will anyone be able to find enough bread here in this desolate place to satisfy these people? Now, it's hard for us to imagine how the disciples could ask this question after the feeding of the 5,000 that they just experienced. Who knows how long it's been? Maybe it's been a couple months, not totally sure, but it's it's in their recent memory and they're not going to forget it, right? And so it's hard for us to imagine how they could ask this, but it really does fit with Mark's portrayal of the disciples over the last few chapters. Mark has been showing that the disciples are struggling really to get it, to get Jesus, to get who he is, to get his ministry. Um, They didn't gain any insight from the feeding of the 5,000, Mark said in 652. Uh, In 718, Jesus challenges them for lacking understanding. In fact, after this very episode, Jesus is going to challenge their spiritual dullness and even question if their hearts are hard. And so Mark has been presenting the disciples here as, man, just struggling to get it. Um, And so, though it's hard for us to imagine how the disciples could ask this question, it really is in sync with Mark's portrayal of the disciples over the last few chapters. Not only that, I can also imagine that uh, since we're in the Decapolis and Gentile area, I just think that has to play into it in some way. Uh, I think the disciples have to be wondering, well, would he really do the same thing for them, for those Gentiles, that he did for the Jews? Um, and so, you know, maybe that's part of their spiritual dullness and their spiritual blindness as well. And so they asked Jesus this question, and Jesus answers, verse 5. And he was saying to them, how many loaves do you have? And they said, seven. In the feeding of the 5,000, it was five loaves and two fish. Here it's seven loaves, and we'll see in a second that it's a few fish. So seven loaves and a few fish with this Uh, moment. And so, continuing, verse 6, he directed the people to recline on the ground. Taking the seven loaves, he gave thanks and broke them and started to give them to his disciples to serve, and they served them to the people. So, it blesses blesses the food, thanks God for it, breaks it, breaks it, passes it out to the disciples. The disciples keep distributing it to all the people. Verse 7, they also had a few small fish. After he blessed them... He told the disciples to serve these as well. So now he's passing out the fish along with the bread. Um, And they ate, verse 8, they ate and were satisfied. And they, probably the disciples, they picked up seven large baskets full of what was left over of the broken pieces. And so in the feeding of the 5,000, it was 12 baskets of leftovers. Here, it's seven baskets. And the word for basket actually is a different word uh, here than it was for the baskets in the feeding of the 5,000. And that becomes consistent throughout the story that this incident, um, this particular word for basket is used when it's referring to the Gentile uh, feeding here in the Decapolis. And then the other word for basket is used when it's talking about the feeding of the 5,000. And so Seven baskets full of uh, leftover pieces. And how many people were here at this time? Well, 4,000, not 5,000, but 4,000 men were there. And then Jesus dismissed them. And so here we have this another great feeding episode, this time in the region of the Decapolis uh, in Gentile lands. And immediately, verse 10, after. Uh, Collecting the leftovers, dismissing the crowd, immediately he got into the boat with his disciples and came to the region of Dalmanutha. And we don't know where Dalmanutha is. There's actually no place named Dalmanutha uh, mentioned in any Other ancient sources, only here. Matthew's version of this story has Megadon, and then a textual variant has Magdala. Well, we know where Magdala is, so if Magdala represents the location of the region in the textual variant, then we're talking about an area on the western side of the Sea of Galilee, which makes sense because we're going to see that there's Pharisees there, and so we're on the Jewish side now of the sea. And Magdala is about three to four miles south of Capernaum. And there was actually a harbor and an anchorage there. So that's our best guess, based on Matthew, that Dalmanutha is a small village in the region of the larger town of Magdala. That's what we would guess based on all the evidence we have. So they sail across the sea to the Jewish side. Verse 11, and the Pharisees came out, came out from town, came out from wherever they were at. They came out and they began to argue with Jesus, demanding from him a sign from heaven to test him. Uh, and so back in Jewish area, we have the Pharisees. They demand a sign. Now, interestingly enough, after the feeding of the 5,000, Mark recorded a story about conflict with the Pharisees. You can read that in 7. one through 23. Well, he parallels now that here with this incident after the feeding of the 4,000. And these Pharisees demand a sign, and we as the reader, well, we've been seeing those signs, right? Healings, casting out demons, miraculous feelings, feedings. We've been seeing these signs, and in fact, in the last few chapters, we've seen Gentiles have actually sought him out. Gentiles have spread the word about him, and they've even said he's done all things well, But these Pharisees, people that should be prepared more so than Gentiles, they come, they argue with him, they demand a sign, and they do so specifically, it says, to test him. Not from a good heart, not from a pure heart, they're testing him. So they come, and verse 12 tells us how Jesus replied or responded. Verse 12 says, Sighing deeply in his spirit, he said, Why does this generation demand a sign? Truly, I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. The sighing here of Jesus seems to refer to just being grieved, maybe even frustrated a bit at their hardness of heart. They're just unwilling to listen. They're unwilling to see. And now they're testing him and arguing and demanding a sign. In some regards, the phrase this generation that's mentioned twice here seems like maybe a very subtle allusion to the wilderness generation. That word generation is actually used in Deuteronomy 1 and Psalm 95 to speak of the wilderness generation during the Exodus in the Old Testament. Um, That generation uh, during the Exodus grumbled and complained in their obstinacy to God and they tested God. Um, and it almost seems like that phrase here is a subtle allusion to that generation then is just like this generation now they're obstinate, hard-hearted and they're testing what God is doing. And so Jesus is frustrated with them, says, no sign is going to be given to them, verse 13 and leaving them, he got back in the boat and embarked and went his way back to the other side. So they sail back across the sea. And as they're sailing, The disciples and Jesus have a conversation. Mark sets it up like this, verse 14. And the disciples had forgotten to take bread and didn't have more than one loaf of bread in the boat with them. So this is Mark's setup for the conversation that's about to ensue. They only have one small round loaf of bread. So there they are, not enough bread and in the boat. And Jesus says this, verse 15. And he was giving orders to them saying, watch out, Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. What's The leaven of the Pharisees, well, leaven, literally, was like our sourdough starter maybe in our world. It was a little piece of dough left over from a previous batch that you could add to the next batch so that it would be leavened or it would have yeast so that it would rise. And sometimes leaven is used in a positive sense in the Bible. But most of the time, leaven is negative. It speaks of influences that lead people away from God and it speaks of the permeating power of sin. So, the leaven of the Pharisees and Herod is their negative influence. In fact, in Matthew's version of this episode, uh, he even specifies that it's their teaching, which includes their example. And in the immediate context here in Mark, their example is their demand for a sign and their obstinate resistance to Jesus. So, this is what Jesus means. He means their negative influence. But the disciples hear him refer to leaven, Maybe their stomachs have been growling and they're a little hungry. They only have one loaf. And so all they can think about is literal bread. And so this is how they respond. Verse 16, they began to discuss with one another the fact that they had no bread, like 11 of the Pharisees, man, we don't have any bread, man, I'm hungry, right? So they start processing this and Jesus aware of this said to them, why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet comprehend or understand? Do you still have your heart hardened? Having eyes, do you not see? Having ears, do you not hear? Do you, do you hear the echo there at the end of this Jesus' rebuke of the language that was used clear back in Mark chapter 4 in the context of the parables, how the crowds had eyes but didn't see, they had ears but they didn't hear, their hearts were hard, right? Now Jesus is taking that same language and using it as a rebuke to his very own disciples, to the 12, and it's a stinging rebuke. Um, it's the language of people that are spiritually blind and spiritually death and don't get Jesus. Don't follow Jesus. And Jesus is saying, are you like that? And this, as I've noted, is a, has been a key theme of the last few chapters of Mark's story. Will the disciples actually see? Will they get it? Or is their heart hard? And here in this moment, it's somewhat climactic because in the immediate next scene, we'll get the answer to the question, And what Mark will show us is that they're beginning to see, but they don't fully get it yet. They see who Jesus is, but they really don't get what that means. And so here we get this stinging rebuke. And after that rebuke, Jesus continues speaking to them by reminding them that a little bit of bread is really no problem for him. He says this, don't you remember when I broke the five loaves for the 5,000? How many basketfuls of broken pieces did you pick up? And they said to him, 12. And then, when I broke the seven loaves for the 4,000, how many large baskets full of broken pieces did you pick up? And they said to him, seven. And he was saying to them, Do you not yet understand? What Jesus seems to be saying is, open up your eyes. If I can feed thousands of people and have leftovers, don't you think I could just feed the few of us if if we really needed it? Are you so spiritually blind that you're going to argue about bread or wonder about bread? Why are you so focused on bread that you're actually missing my point? And spiritual blindness is a real danger even even when you're right there with Jesus. Well, the boat trip then, remember, they're in the boat when this conversation ensues. So the boat trip across the sea continues, and I imagine probably in silence. And they eventually arrive at their destination. Verse 22, they come to Bethsaida. As we noted earlier, we, there's some debate about the location of Bethsaida. We don't really know exactly where it's at. John mentions a Bethsaida that's in Galilee, but there's a Bethsaida mentioned in Josephus that's in Galonitis, uh, which probably is the one Mark is referring to here since they were sailing from Jewish territory to the other side. Galonitis would be on the other side. So that's most likely the Bethsaida they're sailing to. Now what happens next is a fascinating little story, and it actually seems a a bit like symbolic action. In fact, it's a story that ties in with the state of the disciples who Jesus just challenged as being blind. And it also fits in with what the following story about the disciples who see Jesus and see who he is, but they really only see him partially. So in some ways, this next little scene that's about to happen is like a connecting symbolic action. It connects the preceding scene in the boat and the confusion over the leaven of the Pharisees with the following scene about who Jesus is. Here's what happens. Some people there in Bethsaida brought a man who was blind to Jesus and begged him to touch him. Now, we saw uh, this with the deaf man in chapter 7, where they come to Jesus and they ask him to lay his hands on them. And Jesus does. Here, Jesus does the same thing that he did there. He leads the man away from the crowds. Verse 23. So taking the man who was blind by the hand, he brought him out of the village. Jesus takes him by the hand, guides him out of the village, leads him out away from town and away from maybe uh, extra peering eyes. And after spitting uh, on, in his eyes and laying his hands on him, Jesus asked him, do you see anything? And once again, we get this spitting sort of thing that we saw earlier, and we didn't really know what was going on there, and there it didn't specify where Jesus spat. Here, it sounds like Jesus literally puts the spit on this guy's eyes. Sounds gross to us. We mentioned that there was uh, some belief about some value and even medicinal value to spit in the ancient world. Maybe that's why. Not really totally sure. But Jesus does that, lays his hands on him and says, do you see anything? And here's what happens, verse 24. He, the blind man, looked up and said, I see people, for I see them like trees walking around. In other words, they just, they're not clear. They look like upright pillars or trees, and they look kind of foggy. So he's not seeing clearly. So he's only partially seeing. Then, verse 25, again, Jesus laid his hands on his eyes, And uh, he looked intently and was restored, and he began to see everything clearly. And so we we have this initial moment of healing where the result is the guy sees things foggy-like. Jesus lays his hands on him again, and now he sees clearly. And isn't that kind of odd? Like, what's going on? Does Jesus have a moment of like a short circuit in his miracle working power or what? Was Jesus just like having an off day? We all have off days. Was was this like Jesus' off day? Well, no, probably not. That's highly unlikely. I don't think that's the way it works, right? In fact, this is the only two-stage miracle in any of the Gospels. And my suspicion is, therefore, it's likely intentional. In fact, most experts see this as an acted out or a symbolic act lesson It's that acted out lesson, a symbolic action, which there was a history among Jewish prophets of doing this sorts of things. You can see this in various ones of the prophets where they did actions that intended to communicate something beyond the action. And if you bear in mind the context here, I think it makes perfect sense. In the preceding story, Jesus questions his, questions the 12 about having eyes that don't see. Now, are your hearts hard? Do you have eyes that don't see? His followers are beginning to see, but they really don't fully grasp who Jesus is. And that's what shows up in the following story. They, they, they get that Jesus is the Messiah, but they don't know what kind of Messiah is. They see foggy like, And so most likely... Jesus is using this healing miracle as a lesson for those followers that they need to see more clearly. And thus, Jesus heals this man partially, and he sees things vague and foggy and shadowy. But then Jesus goes back and heals him completely, and he sees everything clearly. And that's what needs to happen to the twelve. They need to have their eyes opened fully and completely. they got to quit being blind or only seeing partially. They've got a little bit of a handle on who Jesus is. Well, now... And in fact, what's going to happen in Mark's telling of the story, now they need to see clearly and Jesus is going to focus his attention over the next handful of chapters in Mark on helping them do just that, helping them see exactly what it means for him to be who he is. And so Jesus did this and Mark told the story of Jesus doing this to illustrate the situation with the 12 and with others who are grasping Jesus somewhat, but not fully. So now here in the miracle, Jesus heals this man. He sees everything clearly. And then verse 26, and Jesus sent him to his home saying, don't even enter the village, which means he must have lived outside of town or maybe on the edge of town. Or maybe what Jesus means is don't go into the town square. Don't go into the heart of town. Just go straight home. Go straight to your house. Um, and likely Jesus does that again to keep things under control so that, again, things don't get out of hand. Jesus is really trying to keep uh, messianic fervor and some of the crowd issues under control so that he can focus on teaching and training the 12 who, who still just aren't getting it. And as we reflect on Mark 8, 1 through 26, if you just look back over the story, we have the, the disciples with Jesus in the Decapolis Hungry crowd, and they're they're asking like, where can we get bread? And they don't fully seem ready to actually feed this crowd like they did the five thousand. Then they get in the boat, and they have this uh, argument about. Uh, bread, and, and what's Jesus actually tied about? The 11 of the Pharisees. We obviously have the situation with the Pharisees themselves, who are at least somewhat familiar with Jesus and have seen him and heard him teach some. Uh, then you have here with this man and this story that illustrates the situation with the disciples. And all of this reminds us that being around Jesus doesn't necessarily mean you're actually going to get Jesus. Like, You could be close to Jesus. You could be around people that get Jesus. You could be around Jesus-y kind of things and not really actually grasp Jesus and who he is and his agenda and his goals and his power and his identity. There's a real risk of that, of just being near to Jesus and thinking thus we're okay with Jesus, but really not actually getting Jesus at all. And that's what we see here in this story. The 12, they've been around Jesus and maybe they're kind of getting him, but Jesus is concerned they're not getting him enough. And he's asking them, Are your heart still hard? Are your eyes still blind? Are your ears still dull? You have the Pharisees who have heard Jesus teach, they've heard the reports, they can verify miracles, and yet Nah, they're just going to test him and argue. They don't really get him. And so we, we today need to guard our hearts about being around the things of Jesus, being near to things maybe associated with Jesus, and not actually really understanding and grasping who Jesus is and what Jesus is all about.